0: time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nish Nikolic and my guest today is Dr. Alice Shires, who is a clinical psychologist, senior lecturer, and psychology clinic director at UTS. Alice heads up the UTS Mindfulness Integrated Therapies Research Clinic and prior to this position was the director of the psychology clinic at UNSW for 12 years. Alice has worked As clinic manager at the university of sydney and consultant clinical psychologist in acute and specialist mental health services in the uk alice has been involved in the teaching training and supervision of clinical psychologists and their field supervisors for many years alice has been teaching and supervising cognitive behavioral therapies over the last 20 years she has developed expertise in mindfulness and its integration into cognitive and behavioral therapies and has assisted in the development of accredited training in mindfulness integrated cbt alice continues to teach advanced mindfulness training for mental health professionals via the micbt institute and is involved in supervision of research in micbt psychological therapies currently Alice is undertaking research projects investigating the possible effects of mindfulness training on anger, grief, and chronic pain. Alice also has been the chair of the New South Wales section of the APS Clinical College from 2006 to 2010 and a university representative on the Psychology Advisory Committee for the New South Wales Department of Health. She was a founding board member of the Australian Clinical College. Australian Clinical Psychology Association from 2009 to 2012 and is currently the New South Wales section chair. Today's conversation with Dr. Shires is fascinating as you can see her passion of mindfulness oozing out throughout our interview and conversation and, and some really enjoyable insights to listen to. So I know this is, this is one that many of us are going to enjoy, whether you're a clinician or someone who is fascinated about the ins and outs of psychology. So it's one to listen to. Hope you enjoy. Alice, a big thank you for coming onto the show today. I'm really excited to to explore this topic of mindfulness uh, and look at where where it goes. I know that you've got an extensive amount of experience in in looking at you know, mindfulness, whether it, you know, more broadly or in the M I C B T world, and some of your your uh, recent or current research looking at uh, how mindfulness and training can apply to. Know whether it's anger, grief, chronic pain, and and you know, I'm assuming other spaces as well. So you know, thank you for coming on.
1: It's an absolute pleasure. Looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> Tell me a little bit about. I like to always always understand uh, from from my guests. Where where do they come from? How do they fall into the space of, of mindfulness? I know this is a big passion of yours. How how did you stumble across it?
1: well i trained in uh, cbt i'm a clinical psychologist and i undertook my training in in england in the uk and uh, uh trained predominantly in cbt although some psychodynamic approaches and some systemic approaches but i i felt pretty i sort of felt quite frustrated with cbt and its in its rather rigid form, as perhaps it was taught, I think it might have become more flexible over the years, uh, and incorporated elements from things like ACT and mindfulness. So it's, you know, there's some interesting spaces. But in those days, it was somewhat rigid. And and I, my my interest started actually when I went to a conference in the UK many years ago and was uh, was in a, a workshop which was very tedious, and so changed over in the coffee break and ended up coming into a workshop given by Stephen Hayes with uh, on an act. and I, I, it kind of blew my mind a bit really because I thought what have I walked into? It was exper- it was experiential. And it was so different to CBT, and I thought, "Wow, this has got some real power." I love this, you know. So, I became very interested in 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 ACT. The theoretical element to it was a little bit hard to chew on when the first book, uh, but it 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 was really interesting to me. And so, I thought, now we're beginning to break into some other areas that will be an alternative to to you know the standard CBT. And so I, I was working with that for quite a long time. And then I came across uh, Bruno and my, my, now my colleague of 15 years or more, I think. Um, and uh, he was presenting on MICBT, which is Mindfulness Integrated Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, for want of a better title. Uh, and, and when he presented that, it made so much sense to me. The model for MICBT covered everything. It was as if it was just explanatory of pretty well all disorders. And, and MICBBT is a transdiagnostic mindfulness approach. And so it made sense that it did that. So all the pieces sort of came together. And from then on in, although I continue to teach CBT, I teach clinical psychology at UTS, and, uh, and CBT is very much the central focus. But I was very lucky that I was able to actually take on the job of teaching and, and teaching MICBT within the clinical training program, which has been a delight. And so. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so that was my first foray into it. So. Uh, so it was Stephen Hayes and then Bruno that sort of introduced me to the model. And I've been working now with MICBT for yeah about 15 years, which is uh, time goes by very quickly. <laughs>
0: it's interesting to hear your path i i in in some sense had something similar as well where i stumbled across you know act following you know a in many many ways a, a short but um you know passionate love of C, of uh, cbt to start with and then into act uh i uh, went to you know steve hayes and, and 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 others training um and you know i've met bruno and been to his you know courses as well uh, and it's, it's interesting to hear that this flavour, um, you know, of, of mindfulness keeps coming back. And I know that there's so much text coming out now that you know talks about whether it's mindfulness-based CBT or whether it's process-based CBT. You know, it's not that CBT doesn't have great, you know, uh, effect and 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 efficacy. It's just that it sounds, seems like many of us are looking for something when we hit that brick wall. When, when uh, you know, rationality is no longer uh, um, uh, cutting the mustard, so to speak. So mm-hmm. it's it's lovely to hear from someone like you who's got so much experience uh, that, that you've had a, a, a similar path as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's been a good, an interesting journey, and of course, MICBT is only one of many, many mindfulness programs, that, uh, 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 and it's it's kind of described as a second generation. Mindfulness. If it's the, you know, in the 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 first sort of generation of MBSR, MB MBCT, were were kind of took out some of the aspects of the original Buddhist teaching, and and MICBT and some of the other programs kind of brought them back in again. So one of the beauties of it is that for me is that it actually does include some of the ethical precepts and some of the components from. The the original Buddhist wisdom from which we've stolen, we've kind of stolen their wisdom again, you know, and uh, taken it and used it. But to keep some of those things rather than throw them out, I felt like some some programs have really thrown the baby out with the bathwater to some extent and lost some of the power. So I was also very, really interested in MICBT because it's one of those uh, programs where those things are considered. But of course, it also includes Element the, the core really important elements of uh, the cognitive and behavioural therapies. So it involves quite a lot of exposure work, and it's based on on learning theory and reinforcement, and considers those as part of its model, the co-emergent model within M I C B T. So it's taking on board and you know other aspects, including interpersonal aspects, which of course are across all disorders and across all of our problems, uh, are interpersonal issues. We all want to be connected in, in meaningful ways, whatever the disorder, whatever the, the stress. And so uh, the interpersonal aspect of it, I think is really important as well as ways of implementing the, 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 the increased wisdom over, uh, but in, in, our, in our lives using exposure principles. So uh, it, it brings a lot of the power of CBT but it has at its core the need for you know, su- sustained practice we're we're using neuroplasticity uh, and and that's very important. there's no magic pill for it. So we're using that, but we're bringing in all of these other elements of wisdom in a in a kind of package that actually includes all of the key aspects of Uh, our our human experience you know our thoughts our feelings our emotions the sensations that make up those emotions and the response to those things or the reactions to those things that form our behaviors and once we kind of understand that that model if you like then everything sort of becomes clear a bit you know it's a bit like when I first came across sort of schema work and 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 you know I've kind of got that beautiful moment where you realize that once you could, once you could locate someone's kind of schema, it gave, it gave it explains so much of their behaviour. Ah, now I can see what why all the, all of this is unfolding. So it's a bit like that. It's a bit like once we know the components of the human experience, how we take in information, process it, and so on, uh, and and we and we learn that experientially, then of course it it gives rise to a tremendous amount of wisdom uh, about the self and some chance of making change because we can't change things if we're not aware of it so so yeah so see, it's it's uh, it's been a delight to use it i think it's um uh, but it's not the only method and there are lots of emerging programs and some really interesting stuff and and so much literature in this area there was i was looking this morning just there was a systematic review of meta-analyses which i thought was amazing so so for those that might not know it Meta-analyses are when you take a whole lot of studies and and take all of their data and reanalyze it. But this was a systematic review of all of those meta-analyses. So altogether, it was something like 336 randomized controlled trials looking at 30,000 people, participants. And so they were looking at the effects of mindfulness across all of these reasonable standard studies. And that's not really been done before. So it does represent a nice collection of the data, you know, and and it's interesting. It's a mixed bag, like lots of things in research. They always seem to come out with mixed results. But it does suggest that mindfulness uh, certainly seems to across pretty well across the board. uh, the, The mindfulness programs seem to be superior to passive Uh, controls. So it's better than nothing. It's better than waitlist, which is great. (laughs) But in some areas, it's coming very strongly as superior to some of the active controls, including things like CBT and so on. Um, Interestingly, in psychiatric disorders, it it showed itself to be quite strong in comparison to other treatments. Uh, And at follow up, whereas some of the physical health, things like pain and so on, uh, it's really on a par with other treatments and given that there's a great battle to really come up with some really powerful treatments for pain, pain and health it's kind of on a par with the state, you know which is good enough I mean it's as good as and that's perhaps we sometimes when we say there's no significant result with a with a, a control that's active actually what that means is it's as good as and therefore we have some choices of as clinicians whether we use the you know the current evidence-based treatment or whether we bring some of these other treatments that have some equity in their in their evidence base so so it's a you know it's a mixed picture there's no you know huge results sort of you know but uh it it certainly confirms overall that that these mindfulness programs or mindfulness integrated programs uh, are very you know, a, a building a body of evidence, and certainly for the relapse of depression, that comes that's that that clearly evidenced as more effective than than CBT across all of these trials. So we're beginning to see a shape from from this huge amount of research that's that, that's that's taken off. You know, in terms of mindfulness and 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 and, and, and some of the other programs like ACT that includes some uh, meditation practice as well. So,
0: yeah, so it's an interesting field to be in at this point. It seems like there has always been in many uh, ways a mindfulness component uh, because just to be taking another perspective or to be looking at a different viewpoint requires there to be, you know, a notice or requires there to be an observer. It's just that now it seems like there's more of a uh, an explicit um, process toward highlighting that that observer exists, that um you know there is a you know, potentially uh, value in developing a non-judgmental witness that can observe these things. and if we practice that, you know we 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 do. You know, numerous cycles of that we become better at, at you know diffusing and separating ourselves from thoughts or you know observing feelings so they're not pushing us around as much and uh, in many ways it, it seems to me that you know traditional CBT uh, has, Worked on that as well. It just hasn't been explicit, and 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 once we talk about some of these processes a little bit more directly, I think it helps clients to to see themselves what they're trying to target. So it's not just you know, one thought against another, uh, which you know in many ways works. That's that's probably how I still run ninety eight percent of my life. Uh, but every any time I get stuck, I can go back to the observer um so it's not that you know rational and logical uh, minds are not you know incredibly helpful they are you know phenomenal uh, they, they they are probably the best part of the brain um well, in a
1: way in a way cbt if it's done well first of all brings a lens of 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 two thoughts so thoughts because we're working with thoughts and CBT and assumptions and so on, it does bring the, it kind of puts those in the spotlight. And by observing them and noticing that we can change them and we can change our minds over and over again, often clients, you know, after some while of changing their mind and noticing how that affects their feelings and their, therefore their behavior, then they, the shortcut becomes more appealing. You know, do I need yes. to actually go through the all of these thoughts and, you know, really look at the evidence for and against in that very traditional way? Actually, maybe now, I've done that so many times and proved that I was wrong and that that wasn't correct and that it was, you know, that the one big bec- one becomes almost one starts to move towards, well, if I I see that these thoughts can be changed and that they change with my mood and that under the light of rationality, they don't seem quite so obvious or clear cut, then as a result of that continuously, we start to, in a way, undermine some of our unhelpful thoughts. And once we do that, the shortcut might be rather than analyze the thoughts, simply let go of them and not engage with them in the first place and that becomes much more like mindfulness which of course uh, it's you know in most mindfulness programs the idea is to is to observe them but not engage with them even as they start to pop up and 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 it's a lovely idea that I put with clients, you know, is where does a thought come from? When do we know a thought is arisen? And where does it go to? (laughs) And to actually watch a thought starting to emerge, and then by not engaging in it, it just disappears. So we don't even have to bring the thought to fruition. Uh, And then because then we have to challenge it. And there is an argument that by thinking I'm not stupid, I am, of course, thinking stupid and therefore, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So better to just bypass it. So in mindfulness, the critical difference is that we're not engaging in in any analysis of thoughts at all but only noticing that the process of thinking is occurring and bringing the attention back to whatever the target is, the breath or the body, in order to learn to disengage. And and that, that probably underlying that neurologically is probably doing some things that affect, for example, the default network, which has now become fairly widely known about, you know, this network in the brain. that's that's in charge of thinking about things that come to our attention in relation to me, you know. So what does that mean to me? It's sometimes referred to as the me network, you know. So what does everything as I see it and hear it mean to me? And of course, that default network is very active in people that are depressed. It's very active in people that are troubled. And it's less active in people that seem to be more content. So although it serves a purpose, like all of those neural capacities, we need it. It's not that we want to get rid of it because we need to know what things mean for us, for our survival. But when it's overactive, it becomes continued rumination and worry and so on and so on. And it seems like that network can be uh, inhibited. When we do things that that are kind of take our mind, you know, so gardening or, or or drawing or wonderful, and and then there's that feeling of flow because we're now inhibiting this network, and of course that's really what mindfulness is doing. We're learning by not paying attention to the thoughts, not paying attention to the thoughts, bringing back to the sensations being the focus of attention. Then we're starting to learn to inhibit that that network and and possibly other networks that related to salience and other other aspects. But certainly, it, it makes sense that if we can inhibit that network, if we can, it's always going to be there for us. We're always going to be able to think what that what does that mean to me in relation to my past? Is it dangerous? Is it this? Is it that? But when we practice, you can almost you can feel you can almost notice this little network. You know, every thought comes with a. What does that mean to me? And it's it's a great rest to be able to shut it down and just experience whatever we're experiencing without it. Whether it's the breath, whether it's the body, whether it's in our practice, and perhaps then some of it can be taken out and generalised into our our normal lives. Uh, and certainly, it seems that that's a very important n- neurological finding. And there's a guy called Norm Farb in the in the US who who's written quite a lot and doing some wonderful n- neurological work with MRI scans. He's very lucky to have those resources, and and does some fantastic um, imagery uh, research looking at the effects of meditation on this default network and other associated networks to see how mindfulness is, is kind of, you know, inhibiting them. We used to think all the research was about whether mindfulness grew your brain almost physically, whether there are areas of the brain that would get bigger. But that's really quite crude in comparison to the networks. And it's not just the activation of networks. It's actually really, perhaps more importantly, the inhibition of neural networks that gives us that sense of flow and, and release. Uh, But it does, like all things that we learn, whether it's the piano or riding a bike, it, of course, unfortunately uh, requires a ton of practice, and and that's, in a way, the focus of the clinician in MICBT is almost exclusively really getting the person to actually practice, and uh, that, you know, that takes a a lot of work.
0: That's why I think many people who are practising and they are involved with you know whether it be buddhist principles or you know uh, meditation that, that that do a lot of practice there's such a rich environment for that repetition to to occur i know for myself even though i struggled uh, immensely with university because you know i was young and i didn't see the value in it and you know i was i was above it all of course when you're young um i i, I recognize that in tutorials in particular I would hear what one student would say and I would cling to that idea. And I think to myself, my goodness, geez, they're smart. You know, I never thought of that. That's such a brilliant idea. And, you know, I'd keep that, you know, in my my back pocket. And it wouldn't even take two more comments. And someone else would say something that was, you know, in my mind, far superior to the first. And so I'd say, oh, you know, that's even better. So I'm going to discard the first one and, and you do that for you know the uh, uh, the duration of the tutorial, and you do that every single week for years, mm-hmm. uh, and that was the practice ground of of not holding any idea uh, too tightly, you know. And, and and we know that anything that resonates for us, we grab tightly, or that's enjoyable, we grab tightly. And and for me, you know, at university. Wasn't just an education ground for understanding and learning about psychology. It was very much about, you know, how do I hold these ideas because they were only true, and this is obviously what the scientific method does as well. It's only what's true today, you know, uh, with the evidence that we've got today, and. But it's such changing, a beautiful way of thinking. Yeah, uh, changing
1: field.
0: yeah it's it's and um, it
1: and it, and it fits in a way with the the whole, the whole the the notion of mindfulness leading to a kind of cognitive fluidity. Yes, um, that that seems very helpful to people. So rather than having a rigid set of of, of beliefs or goals, they become there's a loosening that I see with clients that 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 occurs. So. There's less of the I, me, I like, I don't like, you know, all of these rigid uh, kind of assumptions. And by a sort of osmotic process, people become just a little bit more fluid about those things and sometimes really much more fluid about those assumptions. So so it's looking at each thing in a more open way without bringing to bear all of the assumptions and 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 rigid beliefs and so on uh but looking at things fresh and new and being not sure and i think that's different to there's perhaps in in there's been a kind of wave of this let talk of the not knowing approach and i think um it gets sometimes a bit confused with not knowing anything and and of course we can we it's 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 really needs to be thought of as uh not being 100 sure we see mm-hmm. what we see but that of course can change with the next piece of information in the next piece of information so we're continually growing and you, you touched on of course attachment you know our attachment to things uh is is what causes us a great deal of craving and aversion happiness and sorrow And the more attached we are to something, the more likely we can be hurt by it. So people often cling to beliefs that are very attached to their identity. And when that's then threatened in some way, it feels very much like it's threatening me, my sense of self. And and that's when people find it very difficult. So a bit more of fluidity would be very useful to all of us. It protects us from these rigid identities that seem to cause a great deal of difficulty. You know, you can almost measure how upset someone's going to be by something, depending on how attached they are to that particular thing. And whether it's a self identity, you know, if I think I'm clever and then someone tells me I'm not, it would be very hurtful because i that's part of my identity. Or whether it's someone close to me because they're mine, as opposed to what difference is the value of someone who's mine as opposed to someone who's over the other side of the world. They're the same. So mm-hmm. this attachment issue is what causes a lot of of, of difficulties and, and suffering. And at the that 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 mindfulness approaches also touch on that a, a loosening. You know, we're in the Western world, so we're not going to get to enlightenment. There's no way. And and but but uh, uh, but even over t- you know ten sessions, we can make a shift or a loosening in our our rigidity towards things and a more open mind and maybe a you know shutting down of or the or an ability to at least inhibit the the default network and do less of that me thinking and what would be interesting is if we didn't do all that me 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 thinking what does this mean to me what would we look like might we be much more aware of others might it be we (laughs) rather than me uh you know so so and that that brings in of course all of the literature and all of the the, the renewed interest in Western science of of the compassion approaches and uh which is wonderful that we're we're looking at those areas and starting to think about how we can utilize those to mend people and and uh, uh, and I'm very interested in in you know some of the work that Christine neff and others have done in that area as well
0: can you can you say a little bit about uh uh Maybe expand a little bit about you know attachment and clinging in uh, in the space of you know today's very uncertain world. You know, there's 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 propensity to to you know, grab onto what you know is true, or at least to cling to 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 feel like you've got security in grabbing something tightly when there's you know chaos, or at least perceived chaos. You talked to us about you know our complex world. There's lots of uncertainty, and 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 the role of mindfulness, you know, to uh, in 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 today for our well-being.
1: Yes, well, there's indeed, and there's a lot to to think about. And 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 I'll start from a sort of back end and then work backwards because I was at a conference recently where uh, there was a Buddhist monk talking about um, what what use mindfulness has in a way in relation to climate disaster. And uh, what they, he felt was fairly impending, you know, troubles ahead, you know. So well, he wasn't painting a, a pes- an optimistic picture at all. But that uh, what can we do in relation to impending disasters as a human race? What's our role? And he used a nice analogy because, because someone had said, isn't it rather selfish to be practicing mindfulness and focusing on oneself in a world that's where you know it's turning into disaster. Should we be protesting? Should we be this? Should we be that? And yes, we we probably the suggestion was that that from a you know Buddhist perspective that yes we can in in ways that uh, are thought of you know thought through. But the, the analogy was that if you know you're on this sinking ship, uh, we don't want to be the person that pushes people out of the way to get onto the boat that may not be the right way. But we also don't want to be the person that's quivering in fear in the corner uh, and, and, and that's not a helpful contribution. So if we can attend to ourselves, our own minds, our own issues and become more resilient, more robust, all of those things. Then we can be the person that perhaps assists those people as the boat's going down. We can assist to, for people to get into the boats. We can assist the people who are terrified to, to 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 try and leave the boat, you know, as quickly as possible. And I thought that was a useful analogy. It's really about you know, there's when when things are going to be troubled or they have been troubled and they continue to be. We can. We can, there is a sort of responsibility to to get one's own house in order in order to be ready to assist others. And it was a nice analogy and it made it sort of, it helped to clarify for me some of the the, uh, dilemmas, I suppose, about what role we should be playing in these bigger world uh, uh, pictures. But also on a on a, on sort of working back from that, I've done some thinking with others also about uh, future, you know, disaster and the need for equanimity. You know that that to de- develop skills of equanimity, which is to not react to craving or aversion, and that comes into mindfulness programs. You're probably familiar with those words if you've done Bruno's program. You know that everything we do is a craving i feel hungry i crave i feel you know a pain in my leg i move it that's the response to aversion but that we can actually temper those and we can develop skills to be able to respond rather than react to craving and aversion and make some decisions about craving and aversion and with that practice and the practice of of the the going through the body, exposing to all of the sensations within the body, systematically not reacting to them, whether they're craving or aversion. What we're developing is this strong sense of equanimity a non-reactivity that comes back to that position of being on the sinking ship and being able to respond in the best way possible to assist others, uh, rather than to be reacting to fear or to to competition and greed and, and pushing other people out of the way. So equanimity is the kind of underlying skill. And with it, of course, comes adaptability, flexibility, to be able to adapt to changing environments, which is what we were talking about before, in a way. The more people will be able to adapt to crisis and change, the more resilient they'll be, the better they'll be able to you know, minimise the harm to themselves and to others. And so it's an important set of skills. It's beyond the treatment of disorder. It's really about the development of skills that may be very helpful across communities, across, you know, across the world. And and there's some lovely work. I've just I've got a uh, i have i have got ai supervise someone called Hen Saab, who's a Muslim uh clinical psychologist who, who's just developed a whole set of mindfulness programs across about 18 languages, uh, and, and is uh, providing those in the sort of Sydney region, do what well, some wonderful mindfulness resources, and she's reaching out. You know, with these some of these programs, and finding that people are very welcoming of some of some of these post-COVID, uh, where people seemed, you know, there, there was a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety. I think there still is. It's still a. It's not. It's not just disappeared. Um, so there are people out there, you know, really bringing this into the population and doing some wonderful things, and and, and hopefully preparing us for 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 what's ahead. I don't want to sound too gloomy because we don't know what's ahead. But but uh, uh, you know, I think we can anticipate that there'll be some troubles along the way.
0: <laughs> well, it's in, it's interesting to to you know listen to the importance and the value of a general sense of groundedness, that uh, equanimity, you know, really exploring the space of finding you know calm and composure in what can be a confusing time and, and you know for a lot of us we're completely inundated with so much information that that alone is difficult to sort out and, and you know we're trying to get to the bottom of something or to the truth of something you know, we're trying to cling to a, a single point rather than maybe being grounded in that there is a movement and the, the, the importance is about adaptability rather than finding or, 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 or um, yeah, rather than finding the truth or the point, you know, because you know, we're, we're still trying to go back to fusion, you know, grabbing the, the thing that makes sense versus, you know, maybe it's a process that, that uh, we can kind of look at. It. And, yes, there are some challenges that the human race is facing mm-hmm. and in many ways uh, uh, we've faced them many a time previously and this just appears to be new and different which which it is uh but uh you know uh, we've also got lots of new and um you know interesting technologies and we're trying to do it at a global sense for the first time i think uh uh, you know the 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 fact that there are global organizations is is new in history uh that, that you know lots of countries are are involved in so it's it's fascinating to be you know in this part of history, uh, uh, to observe what what has happened in the past—not that I was there, but to, to hear about it and read about it, and to look at where are we today, you know, and 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 you know how we do this as a collective, um, you know, uh, uh, category called humans.
1: Mm, yeah, and 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 I think more and more there's a need for. You know, human beings to be connected to one another, and so COVID, of course, has been very difficult in mm. for for people. It's disconnected people further. So I think you know, I I, I hope that there's move towards uh, bringing people together with you know legitimate and 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 healthy ways of connecting. Uh, that are going to be very valuable in the future for us to connect in so many ways that, that, uh, uh, that, that, you know, there's a call for that. And certainly I think that will be a very interesting area because there's a sort of surge, an additional surge of loneliness and disconnection on top of all the other problems. And so people can be very isolated. We've always known that people can be very isolated, but I think even more so now. So it's very important to find ways of connecting and so on. But the other thing I suppose is is interesting is that, of course, from a sort of Buddhist perspective and, and, and therefore translated through mindfulness programs is the idea, of course, that that suffering exists, but that we we make we make our own suffering because of our own perception of what happens so the second arrow so if I have pain yes I have pain but the second arrow is my thoughts and fears and perception of the pain so we can't necessarily change our circumstances our health our crisis in the world whatever it might be we can make some we can make attempts to do that and that's absolutely right but we can't always change things But we can certainly do some work on our our own inner world, uh, which creates so much of the problems associated with, uh, you know, what's actually happening to us. And we see it every day with our clients. Uh, It's, you know, they can be in a very comfortable position uh, and secure position in life, seemingly, and yet be tortured uh, mentally. And other people can be in a very tricky position situation and be manage it well and seem relatively happy so we know that it's not relative our perception is that we can find things outside of ourselves to make us happy or to provide well-being but of course uh, the inside our thoughts and perceptions and our relationship to our thoughts is also very important and that's where we can also as psychologists be immensely helpful because the answer is not outside. it's not in the the, the drinking, it's not in the you know the the, the the stealing it's not in the the fighting, it's not in the arguing it's not in the you know all of the things that we might do to get what we think is the solution. Uh, the solution is within. And that's where, so a focus on the inner world, uh, I think is also uh, really important. And of course, all the work in mindfulness is about, in a way, uncovering, I like the idea that it's uncovering the invisible puppet master, the the body, the the thing that makes us react, that that makes us reach for the whiskey or, or shout at their partner or whatever that reaction is, once we uncover that using mindfulness techniques of practicing, scanning the body, becoming aware of the subtlety of what's happening in the body and its relationship to the mind, those co emerging elements of thoughts and, and the, the co emergent feeling in the body, and vice versa. Once we uncover that, we start to, it's like revealing this puppet master that we didn't know was there that was making us do all these things. Now I can decide whether I respond to that feeling of tightness in my chest that's that I might call fear or the heat in my cheeks that I might call anger. I can now recognize it. I've sat with it. I've learned equanimity. I can feel it, observe it, but not react to it. So now I have a choice about how I behave in response to those things. I can make some wise decisions. It still might be to leave the room or to do something. But it would be a decision that I make rather than just reacting, being controlled in a way by what's unseen. So bringing awareness, the process of bringing awareness of these inner uh, sensations that create a a desire for more or a, a wishing to get rid of it. Uh, once we know those then we can learn to abide with them and the phrase that Bruno uses which I love is that the practice of mindfulness teaches us or gives us a skill at becoming unperturbed by the experiences within the framework of the mind and body and I just love that you know to be able to be unperturbed to be aware of them all that's going on with every thought there's a co-emergent sensation and vice versa and a memory pops up and there's a sensation but to be aware of them but to be unperturbed by them such that we can then make decisions about what we want to do and how we want to behave and what we believe is right according to our values uh rather than this 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 reactive world and and when we when my students undertake the mindfulness training they often say God, I can see now my clients reacting. I can imagine what they must be feeling and and I can see that they're reacting to these things. And so and that's that shows a great wisdom. It's like seeing this other layer underneath what we're normally aware of, this deeper layer of understanding that each of those little thoughts that come up, pop, pop, pop about what this means to me will we'll, we'll give rise to a co-emergent sensation, no matter how subtle. Sometimes they're very strong. Sometimes they're subtle. But a lot of them are under our threshold of awareness. So we're not normally aware of them. So I might move my foot without even knowing because it's, you know, there's a pain in my toe or something. Equally, someone says something to me, and I don't realize that I'm actually feeling tight and heat but I I will want to get rid of that. And so that's when I shout, you know, and, and release it. And so, so being aware of the tightness and the tension and knowing it gives me a choice whether I shout or whether I don't shout. I, I still may choose to shout, but it's a choice. Uh, and so I think that's one of the really important skills that we doesn't often get talked about in mindfulness. There's lots of a kind of lay idea of being in the moment and so on, and there's lots of other aspects to it that are very important. But to become unperturbed gives us a tremendous freedom, uh, such that even when things are difficult outside and we're experiencing some co-emergent, you know, discomfort, we don't need to do anything with that. It's just sensations. They are just sensations, and so uh, and and that's where it brings me into kind of working with pain, where I've been doing quite a lot of research in trying to utilize some of the techniques that 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 are used in practicing meditation. Because in traditional meditation, you sit for very long times, and even in the Vipassana training, which I've done a few times, you sit for ten hours a day for ten days, cross-legged on a very not a very thick mat and there's there's pain and so one's sitting and learning to experience strong sensations but with no reaction and that skill uh, is very helpful and, and generalizes out to other areas but what we were looking at was there are some techniques within the practice that just observing the sensations objectively as just sensations, trying to not have that second arrow come in, just a sensation, it's just movement or heaviness, lightness, you know, objective sensations. And that seems to be, and and, and in practice, when one needs to sit quietly with pain, these are techniques that are very helpful in just abiding to be unperturbed by those experiences. So we've been looking at ways that we could just use those very brief techniques with people with with chronic pain and there's a few studies sort of building um with acute pain with we used one when with students who had to put their hand into a very 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 cold um ice cold bath to induce pain and we also work with some people with chronic pain and and the, the method is only about 30 seconds twice so it's about a minute it's a very brief intervention we weren't expecting huge findings although The initial study did show a reduction in in the perception of pain uh, and distress associated with pain. And subsequent studies with students with acute pain and uh, what it showed is that they could keep their hand in in the water for much longer. So they tolerated the pain for longer, having had the instructions in, in observing the sensations objectively rather than a distraction technique. And then with people with chronic pain, there was also... And,
0: sorry to jump in, Alice. Yeah. And, and, and while they've got their hand in the bucket of water, they are objectively describing the pain. So, for example... Not
1: while they're doing it. They're applying that technique so, so they get instruction prior to the... Te- the, to the so the, here's what you're going to do when you get in... You, and mm-hmm. then they put their hand in this very ice-cold tank Um, With a maximum of two minutes, because we don't want them to hurt themselves. But what I could see was that it was interesting that some people that were applying that technique, and a lot of young people kept their arm in for the whole two minutes. And over the two groups, the distraction group who were applying distracting, trying not to feel the sensations, uh, the, the the group who were objectively, deliberately observing the sensations. Uh, did were able to stay longer and they also recognized the sensations as being pain that's sort of what we call the threshold a little bit later so they were labeling it as pain a little bit later as a result so these are small changes but it's only a minute instruction you know it was it was very brief instruction uh and and it seemed to alter their experience and with people with chronic pain we've had mixed results um one study, got, we got fantastic results. The second study, it was people who with with much more chronic pain and uh, the results were a bit less. But there were still some findings in relation to, again, this, this ability to uh, to you know manage or, or, or their perception of the pain and the distress associated with pain. So some some small results. So we've been looking at that. We're looking at another study now doing the same thing, but online. Um, so that people can just do it via Zoom, get the instructions, apply it on a regular basis with chronic pain, and then we look at what that looks like after two weeks and then again after six months and see whether whether this is, a, a, if, if you like, a technique that could be implemented, irrespective of whether the person is doing a full mindfulness training. It could be part or an adjunct to CBT or any other method at just being able to learn the skill of being aware of sensations but without judgment really looking at them for what they really are the true nature of the experience mm. which is simply solid versus sort of uh more fluid hot or cold heavy or light moving or still or somewhere across those those spectrums and so uh, when you think of something as heavy or light neither is better And the same with hot or cold, something's very cold or very hot, it might be unpleasant, but usually if it's less uh, intense, it's gonna be a bit more more easy to manage. And what we see is there's a change from the extremes towards the center when people are managing to develop the skills. So we're looking at some interesting ways of uh, uh, trying to assess the change. We've also uh, developed an, an equanimity scale to try and capture the change because uh, there's lots of mindfulness scales that measure mindfulness, but to measure a change in this component of mindfulness, this outcome of equanimity or equipoise or non-reactivity uh, and try to encapsulate that. And we're trying that out with uh, clients to see whether we're really actually affecting that with mindfulness programs. So there's some some interesting um I mean, psychologists, you know, they're always developing scales, aren't they? There's so many scales. <laughs> there's, there's something like is... 45 mindfulness measures now. So, uh, so, uh, 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 but uh, I think this one could be helpful.
0: It is It is such a fascinating part of the, you know, mindfulness and acceptance space of how we relate to these experiences and the language that we put on them uh you know there's there's certainly a significant amount to say about the relationship we have with sensations and and you know whether they are unwanted sensations or they're wanted sensations versus they're good or bad and you know because we have this kind of you know relational frame of getting away from what is bad and wanting more of good versus you know wanted and unwanted they're, they're, they're much more described as things that you know at least pose a question of uh, do you like it or, or or dislike it and so therefore you've got a, a relationship to it um, yes. and, and, and I'm neutral, hearing... of
1: course sensations that are neutral are often perceived as slightly unpleasant because they're kind of not positively rewarding and so so we don't like neutral what we like is what we seek is sensations that are pleasant uh but what we're slightly skewed towards is a is 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 picking up and recognizing sensations that are negative or unpleasant
0: mm-hmm.
1: so there's a sort of skew that something has to be like 0. 0.6 pleasant pleasant to actually become aware of as opposed to 0. 0.4 uh unpleasant way. So we pick up on, you know, and that's probably for survival reasons. It doesn't, it, it doesn't serve much purpose to be able to feel, you know, recognize that we have a pleasant sensation. Uh, uh, whereas the the unpleasant ones, it probably uh, is beneficial to us to be able to to bring those to awareness a little bit quicker. Uh, and so, yeah, but, but a lot of the neutral ones and the subtle ones uh, are often uh, go, you know, unnoticed. And, There's a lot of research also on interoception, the ability to perceive sensations within the body. And some of the research is is coming out to suggest that, for example, in depression, people have a lower interoceptive ability uh, and that they can't feel the body. And it may be Norm Farb is doing some research where he put depressed people in in a scanning machine and showed them depressing images and that the 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 brain kind of shut off parts of the somatosensory cortex that such that they wouldn't be feeling uh you know the experience of sadness almost trying to protect it was as if they was trying to protect them but of course what that does is mean that they become less aware of sensations in the body and therefore, they, they're reacting to that invisible puppet master even more because there's less awareness. And so, there's also some evidence that interceptive awareness is lower across a number of different disorders as well. And that therefore, we could we could we could hypothesise that by increasing interceptive ability, by learning to feel the body. We might well actually get the reverse and actually increase well-being, and that seems to be showing, you know, in some of the research that uh, people who can feel more of the body—and I don't mean feel just the just their breath and they worry about their breath—you know, it's not just sub, you know, a specific area of the body. Like if you've got chronic pain, you might be very aware of your knee when because it's causing pain, but you may not be aware of much else in the body. And when we we when we uh, work with clients with MICBC, we get them to fill in literally the squares of a body, a hundred squares, like a little map of the body, and fill in where they can feel any sensation. And after their first body scan, after one of these these meditation techniques, where we start to feel the body, and often they can feel only maybe small bits, the fingers, the toes. Uh, you know maybe some some a little bit of pain in the left knee or something like that. So maybe even less than 10% of the body is is is, is in awareness. After, after a few sessions, they come back, you know, fill it in weekly. You see this change. And by in a few weeks, some clients can fill in the whole body. So they're now able to feel sensation throughout the body. And when we move into the really advanced, more advanced meditations, they actually practice through the body so not just the surface but the inside as well so to feel everything within the the body and of course over practice feeling it quicker at first we have to go slowly 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 then we can go quicker so that we can check in with the whole body from moment to moment to be aware of 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 what's happening between the mind and the body And then we've got these tremendous skills, not just in equanimity, because we've learned to feel it but not react, but also early cue detection, because if we can feel the subtle sensations throughout the body, it means that, you know, if I'm feeling unsettled about something, I can pick that up earlier Than perhaps if I only feel my fingers and toes, if I start to feel angry, I'm not going to feel or be aware of anger until it's really up here. and You know, it's too late. I'm going to react. So it's early cue detection. And there's some evidence that people seem in higher interceptive ability correlated with making better decisions as well. And I can see why, because we're going to be able to actually feel and be aware of how we feel about that. Uh, 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 and rather than simply reacting to to one of these thoughts that arise, you know. So, it so makes, there's some, it's a lovely area to, to be thinking about going forward.
0: It makes so much sense when I think about learned helplessness in that if you're in a situation or a context in which you feel there is no escape, there's probably some protective function there to have low interception capacity mm-hmm. at that time to you know, to protect, to to, to dull your senses. Uh, sadly, though, when you're in a, in the modern world and your interception capacity is low, it removes the impetus for action, for uh, you know, some behavioural activation, and and you know, that's you know, an important part of someone changing their context. So, I can I can see how someone and, who has high course- interception might um be cued earlier to say i can avoid problems or i can do something about it i'm more connected with my value set and my motivations you know i've got maybe some uh uh, a greater locus of control because of that it's all sort of piecing together um so well
1: and of course if you if you have low interceptive ability because of depression or because of chronic pain or or other things um although it might be protective in that you're not feeling perhaps in theory as as much distress although i suspect in chronic pain you still feel probably you know just as much pain but what's happening is you can't feel as much of course you also can't feel some of the pleasant sensations mm-hmm. so joy and happiness and contentment would be below the threshold you know of awareness and so play it's no wonder that then pleasure which is which is we're not that sensitive to anyway, but it's no wonder that those sensations are not available. And so uh, it you know the increase in interceptive awareness, as well as being aware of all of the unpleasant sensations, which we tend to stress because we're trying to develop equanimity to them. But equally, we have to develop equanimity in relation to the pleasant sensations, craving. So if I just simply, you know, oh, this part of the body feels nice, I'll just stay here. (laughs) That's that's attachment. And then all I'm doing is just staying with a nice area of the body. It feels nice. It's all lovely, wonderful. But it's not going to give me the skill of detaching. Learning equanimity to whatever arises in, in our you know our awareness, whether it's unpleasant or pleasant, we treat it the same, just no reaction, keep moving, no reaction, keep moving through the body, through the body. You know, so so yes, yeah, so we also so we want to be able to feel the whole range, unpleasant mm. to pleasant, to so be fully aware, to be able to utilize sensations to drive our decisions and our our, our wisdom, because. It's in relation to our mind. It's not, you know, they're they're connected. You know, psycho. Like I always sort you know, say to students, you know, that we've we've almost acted as if this is this is the world for psychology to focus on this part here, and anything below there, don't bother. And of course, they're so so interconnected, and there's a lovely fluidity between every thought gives rise to a sensation. Every sensation will produce more thoughts. Mm. And so I love your
0: your a term of co-emerging. That, 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 that's a beautiful way of, of describing what they do,
1: yeah. um, you
0: know. And that and that they just decay by themselves as well. They just go, yeah. sort of uh, vanish again. You know, they decay and, and they no longer exist, at least for a period of time. Yeah.
1: So that and and that's you know the Buddh- That's where the Buddhist wisdom comes because all of this is really Buddhist wisdom that we've 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 uh, colonized really in a way but the the buddhist wisdom is that of course impermanence that everything is impermanent every sensation comes and goes every thought arises from somewhere and, and and disappears everything every cell in our body uh passes away you know arises passes away and of course we arise and pass away and maybe the world arises and passes away you know so everything is in flux mm. and so it's hard to tell that to someone who's sitting there and they're in pain oh don't worry it's impermanent everything's changing but when they practice and start to experience you know this perpetual like almost like the um you know those what are they called like the octopuses where they flash different colors across their skin the squid they change colors it's a bit like that this is a perpetual the uh, relation between thoughts and body, changing, 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 changing. And, you know, I might feel a terrible pain in my my elbow on the way down. And when I come back, there's nothing. It's changed. Mm. It's changed. It's changed. So learning in per- permanence experientially, I think, is, yes. is, is what teaches people.
0: And it's a real learning because so much of our world is based on this medical model, which is to remove pain, you know, that, that when we go to a doctor, the... You know, an initial result that we're looking for is: Can you stop my elbow, my knee, my back from hurting? And uh, quite often, the answer is yes. We can immediately give you some sort of painkiller it's greater than off the shelf. And so, once again, we cling to a result uh, of of you know control. Um, and sadly, there are permanent structural. Uh, um, damage that occurs in accidents and and obviously our bodies decaying that means that these are going to be you know permanent injuries and and you know this is where we have that chronic and severe pain example and, and it requires something more than just medical intervention it requires both you know where we can potentially alleviate some with drugs with potentially you know surgery if someone chooses to or other other means uh but then there's also other things like you know we know that physios these days are extremely well versed in saying you know walk with the pain you know you need to move your arm more mm. to experience less but that also means functionality and maybe development of uh you know improved self-identity and, and so on but it's living with pain versus you know I it always hurts me to hear things like you know pain management. You know, it's almost like you can just manage it, goes away. There, there, there's almost like a, mm. a um, uh, in an uh, unintended meaning that comes from that, or you know, or, or anger management rather than saying, well, no, you you will have anger for your entire life. There's a function and a reason for that, but the question is, what's the choice behind that? So yeah. it's lovely to hear, um, you know, you describing. uh, working with pain in in, in an elegant and 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 respectful way.
1: It's it's definitely an area, it's an area, you know, particularly in the US where where the, the, the medicine itself has become a huge mm. problem. And so we have to explore other ways of managing the the physical distress that people experience. And of course, you're right, you know, the second arrow is the resentment of pain. So uh, you know, uh, rather, um, you know, when we when we work with clients, we you know, we try and get them to take a more curious or even a welcoming attitude to the sensations, that they're not, in a way, not don't not identifying them as me, but but seeing them as a sensation, as an experience, and trying to find a different relationship to them. Now it is very hard because pain is, you know, and, and and chronic pain is is very, very difficult. But people have been shown to be able to make some inroads. So we need to come at it from all angles and really. And and it might be with, you know, just I was very curious about pain and so I was also curious about some of the other areas like yoga uh, because, uh, you know, I thought that might be useful. I did my yoga teacher training to try and be able to think of ways to combine. And I found out quite a lot. I mean, there are so many meeting places between Buddhist mindfulness and, and the yogic teachings as well. The idea of the subtle body in yoga—not just the muscles, but some of the subtler uh, experiences within the body or It has, you know, kind of makes sense from from in, within the the literature and in interceptive ability. Mm. And uh, we we did one study which was to uh, look at interceptive uh, what happens interceptively with people undertaking yoga for trauma. And as well as so these participants, as well as be- getting some benefit from doing yoga for design for trauma in terms of their well-being. Also, that correlated with higher interceptive ability. So when we do when we teach yoga in a mindful way, mm. then once it's really like a moving meditation, one's not just moving the arm, you know, oh, I better mm. do that. I better do that. Well. The, the arm. We're moving our arm whilst feeling the arm. So one's actually moving the body, getting some movement, some uh, ability. You know, to to keep the body, you know, active, but doing it mindfully so that we're also learning interceptive ability, and learning some wisdom about what movements are really unhelpful and what movements are okay, even if there's some discomfort. So mm. that we can actually learn the wisdom by actually being aware of the subtle sensations in the body. Doing a yoga class while you're very low on introspective ability would be very difficult and possibly a bit dangerous because you're going to push yourself further and not really be aware of it. So we can use this body wisdom i think in other ways and and um you know it's difficult because yoga it's, you know there's a lot of variation in yoga teaching and lots of different styles and sure. and some may be less helpful than others for people with pain or distress but i certainly think there's there's it's an interesting area to teach basically moving meditation mm-hmm. that enables us to get some fitness some 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 well-being physically as well as mentally and and learn some uh some some equanimity and some interceptive ability as well
0: it seems to me like that any of these practices have a moderating feature of making space and allowing for there to be pain or discomfort and 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 even if that discomfort is this exercise is boring the fact that someone might sit in boredom which might be a lower level of discomfort is still so valuable because many of us have lost even the capacity of sitting with boredom you know we yeah. pick up our phones we don't like looking out you know the, the window anymore and appreciating nature we're, we're, we're looking for a distraction model to the neutral stimulus you know that yes. that has now become you know a, a new pain yes so, and, and i think
1: you know, uh, you're imagine. absolutely right that boredom is 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 really a mild agitation in the body uh, it's mildly unpleasant and therefore we mu- we want to to find something stimulating to take our attention away from that mild agitation or uh, which might be because of sort of mild levels of worry and so on so it's 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 uh, we we we're, we're looking for stimulation uh, in a way to not feel And of course, uh, as we now, screens are now part of our lives. We're almost perpetually on screens. We're perpetually being stimulated that the intolerance of our own experience, our own mind and body experience internally, I think is growing. And, you know, I've seen with young people when when, you know, even students that I work with and ask them to train and do some meditation practice. They find it very difficult to let go of their phones, to to switch their phones off. I mean, they just, uh, it seems amazing to me, uh, but but I'm the different generation. But to let go of the phone and to be able to just abide with themselves for a period of time is very, very, very difficult. And these are pretty well people generally. They're not the distressed people, uh, but they find it incredibly difficult either because there's some some really strong uh, fear and, and, and aversion or just this mild, as you say, this mild agitation of not enough stimulation and therefore it's perceived as, or it's it's, it's, it's they're not necessarily aware of it, but, the, the, but it leads to a mild agitation. So I think boredom is a, a, a huge challenge. One of the lovely things about doing regular meditation and exposing to boredom is that one really never feels bored again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it, that, again, takes considerable practice.
0: There's, there's, there's something, I think, to say about this space in terms of how we do therapy, the, the fact that, that as clinicians we can try and gauge what our clients need and uh, any level of practice, you know, it's the practice of being the observer, the noticer, you know, being grounded, uh, and coming from a place of you know uh, uh, equanimity to you know either appreciate what's around you so that the boredom isn't there, or see, or create a, a space where you can you know expose, so to speak, to boredom or to to you know the. Acceptance of real life, you know. There's there's so many ways we don't have to start with something you know very significant like, you know, half an hour of sitting meditation or walking meditation. The fact that we're we're actually able to do this in any context, you know, even you know the practice of uh, gently being um, uh, lighthearted with oneself can be in you know, a lovely practice of being vulnerable of making space for you know some shortcomings maybe detaching from those shortcomings and seeing that you know we're humans so we don't have to carry that label and so on there's an infinite number of ways that we can do this and so um you know conversations like this just uh are so um uh, heartening to, to 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 hear with someone with with, with your experience because it, it it tells me a lot about what we can as clinicians and as humans, you know, in our other roles as parents, as as our siblings, and friends, and, and, and colleagues, and the like, that that, that we can um, uh, live life differently and, and support, you know, those around us in very simple and practical ways, without necessarily labelling as therapy or, or with a term. It's 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 a process and a practice of of being in this world in a you know um, in a more flexible way.
1: Indeed, and um, I, I guess I'd add a, a postscript to that, which is that I can really recommend people engage in practice. So oh, you know, MiCBT is half an hour twice a day, and that's quite a, 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 a for over about ten weeks. It's quite a commitment, um, but often those that commit to it are those that s- are suffering the most. So they've got you know they've got more to gain in a way. And so I've learned not to underestimate anyone uh, yes. and find that sometimes people will really do a tremendous amount of work and, and make life changing, you know, life changing changes and do, it you know, wonderfully. But it's not for everyone and not everyone can to do that practice. And the same with the extended, uh, you know, retreats, silent retreats, which are very challenging, but are a a shortcut, a quick, powerful mm. dose, if you like. Uh, I, can, I can, can attest
0: to that. I, uh, you know, I'm not someone who's done many repeats or anything like that. I've done a single Vipassana uh, retreat, uh, twelve days, and I can very clearly say uh, how much positive uh, change and efficacy it's had in my life. Uh, because it's given me real world experience. And I'm someone that once I feel something, once I experience something, I get it. You know? And that's probably because I'm human.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, and, and so once you've got it, that that's never going to leave me. Um, yes, it could be improved and it could be reinforced and become more robust. But uh, you know I've got those skills uh forever because i've done them once but that intensity is is great so yeah like, likewise um to our listeners I, I would definitely say whether it's an MIB MICBT um or you know going to your local um you know meditation center or, or a vipassana retreat um uh, yes yeah, so
1: vipassana retreats might be a bit challenging for uh, some of the clients that we work with, sure. I think well, I think they would. And in a way, I think that was Bruno's motivation to develop M I C B T, which mm-hmm. the components of which, of course, you would you would recognise from from uh, the Vipassana and the Theravada tradition. But but in a way, M I C B T is designed for those people that wouldn't be able to, for various yes. reasons, take on those more intense uh, retreats. Which are definitely a, a very powerful way of of, of upskilling fast, but over a ten instead of ten days, it's ten weeks really, and uh, and a less intense. But it probably adds up to almost the same amount of practice. Uh, but you know, it's about a hundred hours of practice. So so uh, it, it's a way of making it possible for people who are more vulnerable with a skilled therapist who can then also manage any of the issues that arise because there's been a lot of press recently about the unwanted or aversive experiences within practice but of course there are unwanted and aversive experiences within any therapy within cbt it's unpleasant to be thinking about the thoughts there's distress we deliberately in exposure work we deliberately bring about uh distress so there are many transient experiences in any form of therapy i would argue If they're more than transient, uh, then that's something that the therapist would need to be able to work with and and, and, and the therapist needs to be able to work with even the transient ones to make sure the client is aware uh, of how to manage them so they don't become any more than that. But it's provided it's done within that safe environment, either of a traditional setting or with a therapist if they're doing intense therapy, you know, MICBT type programs. Then it's safe. And I suppose the other thing I'd also just add is that I think that, you know, we know mindfulness has become tremendously corporatized and commercialized and Mm -hmm. all of that. The mindfulness. uh, And I think there's often a confusion between relaxation and mindfulness practice. So uh, I've seen a couple of places where they charge People have a great deal of money to sit in a very, very comfortable, beautiful designer chair with some soft music. And I'm sure it's a wonderfully relaxing experience. Um, and would send most people to sleep, if not all, but it's not mindfulness and it but it is relaxation. So I think for our for 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 the public, if I if I'm distressed and I want to try and use mindfulness, if I go in and have a nice sleep in a comfy chair. It'll be blissful and pleasant, but it won't make any difference once I wake up. It's I haven't changed my relationship to my thoughts. And therefore it's 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 you know it's not the optimum help. And I think those confusions, I hope, over the years kind of iron out a bit so we're a bit clearer on what's a change-based focus therapy, the utilization of mindfulness in that with a relaxation and there's some lots of things in between where they do hold components yes. of being present and some of these really valuable components that, that are very useful but I think there's always a risk with everything that's good that it'll be but it'll be overused somewhat. So I sometimes feel a bit protective. My, my attachment <laughs> to mindfulness means that I get a bit overprotective. <laughs> and thank you
0: for making that 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 distinction because it is an important one. I I think part of our job as as clinicians and psychologists is to educate uh, the community about what mindfulness actually is. Uh, and it's certainly not the practice of relaxation. And it doesn't mean that relaxation isn't uh, useful and, you know, uh, shouldn't be practiced i think that, that that's lovely to do um but it's not really targeted at changing your relationship with thoughts changing your relationship with sensations and like but sadly yes. i am mindful of our time so yes, um, before I, I i let you go can i ask you whether um there are any resources or places that 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 our listeners can go to or books they might start uh, on, on start with you know with terms of reading if they would like to follow up on on our topic today anything that you have um as a as a starting point or, or texts or or journals um yeah. where, where, where can we begin
1: well certainly for MICBT, which is one of you know several different programs the uh the website which I think is mindfulness.net uh, but if you Google MICBT, it comes up first on the list. And uh, that's it's the website. Uh,
0: mindfulness.net.au.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. And there's quite a lot of information. Um, and they're one of Bruno's books, we've written a clinician's guidebook recently, which is uh myself and Bruno and and my colleague Sally, which is designed for clinicians to use when they're when they're providing MICBT with clients. But there is a smaller light blue book, which is a self-help book which is designed for people who wish to read about the programme and and go through, you know, and to, to apply it themselves. So it won't suit everyone, but I sometimes give it to clients while we're going through the programme so they can do their own reading. So, and it does give an overview of the theory of the co-emergent model and it gives an overview within the context of the original sort of teachings from which it's come. So it's kind of respectfully... Uh, 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 you know uh set in that context um there are lots and lots and lots of papers I, I can certainly send you some links for a few that i think that would be really good introductions and there are some beautiful mindfulness books uh, i just think be, beware the more corporatized versions uh, i would guide people towards mindfulness that has at least a base in some of the tra- traditional teaching, of, or written by someone who has a knowledge of the tra- traditional teaching uh, from which they're drawing, so that so that it doesn't lose some of the the, the really important parts of the, of the teaching.
0: That's a wonderful, wonderful uh, starting points, and um, yeah, you know, I, I think uh, there's so many places that we can further this discussion in and, and you and i could I, I i can see could talk for for uh forget hours i think i think days or weeks but uh, uh sadly has got to come to an end but uh, i really thank you for 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 your time and your research and your contributions as as well um you know and uh, the 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 importance of giving rise to you know mindfulness and, and and its value because it's you know for, for me it's in the heart of uh not only therapy it's in the heart of human beings yeah, it's a way of living and, and hence why many of us in, in in this space it becomes you know part of who we are um and, and how we view the world and and that's not um not from a position of superiority but one of saying it's liberating and it allows us to, to to live more comfortably and reduce our own suffering and so i think um you know there's great there's great power and value in that so i appreciate you uh, immensely alice and thank you very much and, and, and um, an i'll have to have pleasure. you back on the show at some point
1: best wishes cheers
0: if you enjoyed this podcast please support it by going to itunes and putting a review Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible, and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience, and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.